Don Baker is a veteran pastor from Oregon who in his book, Beyond Forgiveness, writes the following. Dick and I were already seated as Andrew came through the door. He was his usual jovial self. His inquiring eyes flashed back and forth from Dick to me. What's up, he asked. At that moment, I wanted desperately to be on any other planet but this one. I wished for someone else to assume my role, and then I wanted to fade into the woodwork and disappear. Oh, how I wanted to avoid the inevitable, but I could not. Andrew, I said, we've just had some very disturbing news. Dick and I have been on the phone all morning listening to an acquaintance of yours describe you in ways that we have not known you. Two men have been telling us that you have been immoral with their wives. We have talked to the women and they have confirmed the story. A pastor from the same community called and said that word was out and the stories are reaching scandalous proportions. Is any of this true? I watched him as the color drained from his face. His eyes lowers, his shoulders sagged. I saw telltale beads of perspiration pop out across his forehead. He heaved one long, agonizing sigh and shook his head and said, Yes, Pastor, it's true. I can tell you, having had to do that on two separate occasions, I speak from experience in saying, nobody, nobody in their right mind likes confrontation. Especially confrontations like that. I remember one Sunday night when we were pastoring in Michigan, I had to confront a man in his home. What was interesting is that as I told Connie where I was going after our evening service and we had gotten home and I had gotten a call from his wife and I was going to their house, Connie reminded me as I went out the door, remember he's a policeman and he has a gun. It was a sobering moment, but it was a necessary one. You see, it's far easier to let things like that slide to cover over sin and hope for the best. And oftentimes our attitude is anything, Lord, just don't ask me to confront another Christian brother or sister. Don't don't put me in that situation. We paraphrase Isaiah 6, 8 that says, Here I am, Lord, but please send someone else. And then if we find ourselves on the receiving end of that confrontation. Sometimes we selfishly and foolishly pray things like, help me to hide my sins so no one will see. As if God would ever listen, let alone answer such a wicked prayer. We want to just settle back into our nice, easy chairs and do nothing. Now, we're going to get to Galatians 6.1 in a moment, but I want to start by reminding us all of some basic truths regarding confronting wrong. Regarding the issue of rebuking and correcting, all with the goal of restoration. 
Proverbs 12.1 says, He who hates corruption, he who hates correction, is stupid. Psalm 141 verse 5 says, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil on my head, my head will not refuse it. Proverbs 25.12 says, Like a beautiful earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. Proverbs 19, Leviticus 19.17 says, Regarding the need to give correction to others, it says, Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in his guilt. Proverbs 9.8 says, Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And then Proverbs 19.25 says, Rebuke a man of discernment and he will gain knowledge. Again, let me put it on the bottom shelf. Correction with the goal of restoration through rebuke, confrontation, admonition is a basic function of life. And there are serious consequences if we choose to ignore that. Proverbs 5, 12 through 14 says that a man who ignores correction can come to the brink of ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Proverbs 10, 17 says whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Proverbs 13, 18 says he who ignores correction comes to poverty and shame. And it says that even death awaits those who refuse to listen to a rebuke. Proverbs 15.10 says, He who hates correction will die. And that death can either be physical death or it can be spiritual death. Matthew 18.14 in the New International Version says that a brother who wanders away and is not corrected by others in the church is called lost. The New American Standard Bible uses an even stronger word. It says that an unrebuked brother perishes. But it doesn't have to happen. We can help each other. God has provided a way, a means, where if done properly, We can assist one another and we can encourage one another in living the Christian life. And it requires that all of us this morning be willing to let down our defensive walls and open ourselves up to something we don't like to hear, and that is accountability. Accountability. It requires establishing a two-way channel of communication with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can grow and mature and become God-honoring, fruitful, productive followers of Christ. Let me give you the big idea of this morning's sermon, okay? As my daughter-in-law says, give us the big idea, so give, give it to us early so we can go to sleep. <laughs> Here's the point. This is what I want you to learn this morning. A life without mutual accountability is not an option. A life without mutual accountability is not an option. God's solution for strengthening Christians like you and me and to cause us to walk the straight and narrow path that leads to life within a world filled with 
trials and temptations is for us to do, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. And friend, if we really want to grow in our Christian walk, if we're really interested in living by God's standards and not our own, then we must be open to correction. If we really want to live God's way, then we must learn how to lovingly rebuke and restore our brothers when they sin and go astray. And by the way, Let's put this on the record right now. It goes without saying that all Christians sin. We all make mistakes. Yours truly has blown it on more than one occasion. Not to the point that I feel disqualified from serving as a pastor. But we've all made our mistakes. And hopefully none of us need that reminder. You know, I don't want anyone here leaving this morning suggesting to themselves or to others, well, you know, Doug, that message really didn't apply to me because you know what? I don't sin. Let me talk to your wife or husband, your children or your grandchildren or your co-workers. 1 John 1.8 says, if you say you have no sin, you make God a liar. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. James 3.2 says that we all stumble in many ways. And because we stumble, there is an ever and always need for a remedial ministry within the body of Christ. And that remedial ministry is the spiritual calling on the part of those who are mature in their walk with God to call those who are living by the flesh to raise their game to the spiritual level. Now again, the Bible has a lot to say about correcting our brothers and sisters in Christ. Words like, Admonish, rebuke, reprove, warn, instruct, correct, restore are all words that are found in Scripture. And they all deal with that ministry of giving and receiving correction. And again, depending on what translation you're here using this morning, the words like admonition, rebuke, and correct occur at a minimum more than 50 times in the New Testament. It's an essential part of our growth. It's part of the body of Christ. Uh, what, what used to be called years ago, body life. And through our actions and words, we have the power and ability and the duty to correct. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And that's not an overstatement. It's not an exaggeration. Words have the power to tear down or they have the power to build up. You can destroy a person's spirit or you can restore that person when they're down to a right relationship with God. Words can tear and they can wound or they can have the power to heal and restore. And friend, both encouragement and correction are a a positive thing when done properly. Now. With that as an introduction, your Bible should be open to Galatians 6. 
And Paul, as I've mentioned before, in chapters 5 and 6, is really into the very, very practical section of the book. In chapters 5 and 6, he's talking about how to enjoy the Christian life. How to live the Christian life to the fullest. At the beginning of chapter 5, he says it is to be lived and enjoyed apart from legalism. I hate legalism. I've seen its destructive influence on the lives of people. But, he goes on and says in verses 13 through 15, that to enjoy the Christian life, you also have to also live it apart from license. That is, the freedom to do whatever you will please. And then in verses 16 through 24, he says that a life is to be lived dependent upon the Spirit of God who will produce in you the fruit of the Spirit. And this morning, what Paul is going to tell us is that the Christian life is to be lived and enjoyed by serving and caring for others within the body of Christ. And Paul becomes very, very specific. And because the previous verse, verse 26 of chapter 5, sort of serves as a bridge to this section, I want us to look at that just briefly. This is the link. He says in verse 25, he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Verse 26 is the opposite of walking in the Spirit. Verse 26 describes a person walking after the flesh, living a carnal life, being self-centered instead of others-centered. And it's characterized by division instead of unity. And what he says in these verses is don't be conceited. Don't be a braggart. Don't be pompous and arrogant. The word here means to be conceited when there's really nothing to be conceited about. It's being pretentious. It's the idea of people walking around thinking they're hot stuff when really they're not. Now, keep in mind to whom he is writing. He's writing to Christians, as we've mentioned before, who, were, who, who had been infiltrated and influenced by Judaizers who were trumpeting their self-righteous pursuit of the law as a model of piety. And they were walking around like proud peacocks. And he's saying, don't be like that. Furthermore, he says, don't provoke and envy each other. That word provoke has the image of an athlete in competition, where he's forever challenging his opponent for the express purpose of showing off and showing others and letting others know that he's better and more superior. It's the idea of drawing your opponent into competition by intimidating them. We would call it today trash talking. You know what he's saying here? Even though you're good, don't be a Richard Sherman. And for those of you who follow professional football, you know who I'm talking about. Cornerback. San Francisco 49ers. The guy's got a mouth on him that will not stop. And you know what? Oftentimes he backs up it with his 
play, but that's beside the point. And you know what Paul is saying? He's saying, avoid that. But the opposite is also true. Don't envy others. He's saying, don't have a feeling of superiority and don't have feelings of inferiority. Where you're insecure in your gifts, talents, abilities, and accomplishments. So what he's saying here is simply this. Don't say I'm better than you and I'm going to prove it. Or that you're better than me and I resent it. Be an encourager. Build others up. Don't tear them down. Pull together. Work together as a team rather than tearing people apart. So, how do we treat each other? How do we relate to one another? Well, Paul says the very first thing we do is we restore the fallen brother or sister. Look at verse 1. Now remember, he's talking to Christians. This doesn't apply to those outside the family of God. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, the King James says, you who are spiritual, should restore that person gently. But, watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Now again, this verse is so important that we're going to camp on it for the balance of our morning together. What's the picture here? Well, someone in the church has fallen into some sin. It wasn't deliberate. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't a willful defiance or rebellion. By Paul's choice of words and the imagery he uses here, this was an accident. This was a mishap. This was something that unfortunately happened. This person was walking along, doing his best, and through ignorance, he slipped up and he fell into sin. Listen, no one slips intentionally on an icy sidewalk, right? That's the picture here. This person is trying to walk along, he's trying to stay upright, and all of a sudden, he falters, and he falls down. And in light of what he says here, this person may not even be aware of the fact that what they're doing is sin. In other words, it may be that they start to compromise and they call it tolerance. They drift toward disobedience and they call it freedom. They drift towards superstition and they call it faith. They drift towards a prayerless life, a lack of Bible reading and witnessing and church attendance, and they delude themselves into saying, well, I've just escaped the legalism of the self-righteous people in a church. Or they drift towards godlessness and convince themselves that they've been liberated. And what Paul says here is that when that happens, the spiritual are to restore that brother or sister. This verse is a reminder that we are all responsible to step in when needed and provide correction with love 
towards people who we see living a life of sin. Listen, no Christian can stand idly by while another Christian gradually drifts into sin. We can't sit back and say, well, Doug, you don't understand. This is America after all. We're all individuals and we can give an account of ourselves. And the bottom of line is, Doug, that's really none of my business, nor is it yours. Oh, yes, it is. The men and women in a local church are not like men and women outside the church who can live as they please and believe what they want and never be bothered or held accountable for what they think or what they do. Friend, we're all accountable one to the other here at Mid-Valley Bible Church. Remember the big idea? A life without mutual accountability is not an option. Whether you're a member of this church or a faithful attender, friend, we're all accountable one to the other. We are a spiritual family in the truest and yet most loving sense of the word. Paul told the Ephesian Christians that we're to speak the truth with our neighbor, for we are members one of another. Friend, you're not exempt from obeying this passage by saying, well, I have no business sticking my nose into their affairs. I mean, after all, Doug, this is a free country. They can do what they want. Friend, you can say that about your neighbor across the street or a candidate running for political office or perhaps the individual in the cubicle next to you at the office. But you can't say it about the person you're sitting next to here on a Sunday morning or that person who last week with you shared the Lord's Supper with you. Friend, we're part of the body of Christ. And by the way, Paul is not the only biblical author to make this point. James, in a letter to Christians who were scattered among the nations, said at the end of his letter, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now again, In the words of Colonel Jessup, I want to be crystal clear. Neither Paul nor James nor any other biblical author is telling us to meddle in someone's private affairs. Where we have no business sticking our noses. He's not calling for Christians to act like secret police or eavesdroppers who are always on the lookout for the slightest mistake on the part of others and then as soon as they do that, we jump all over them. Friend, what, what, what Paul is saying here is you and I are to lovingly and gently help people who have, who have engaged in a misstep. Especially when they're in, on the verge of, of falling. And again, we don't go around like Sherlock Holmes looking for faults in others. 
It's not that some are appointed by God in the church to tell others how to live. This is someone who has fallen into obvious sin. And they need help. And Paul says the people who are to help are not the self-appointed nitpickers of the church, not the immature or the carnal. It's not the church boss. Paul says, I want the people who are walking and living by the Spirit to restore people. The people who are controlled by the Spirit of God, they're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. You say, Doug, you've talked about that several weeks back, and in fact, you spent a long time on it. How do I know if I'm really walking by the Spirit? All right, ask yourself, are you filled with love? Are you filled with joy? Are you filled with peace? Are you patient? Are you impatient? (laughs) Are you out of control? And you know this. Are, Are you obedient to the Word and applying it in your home, at work? Are you praying? And again, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for a person who simply, as they look at their life, can say, I am moving towards Christ-likeness. I am maturing in my walk with God. I am experiencing victory over sin more so this month than I did last. And as I look over the last 12 months of my life, I can see some significant progress. And I would add, Others can see it as well. The Spirit is producing in you fruit. That's the general pattern of your life. There's a song in your heart. There's a worship towards the Lord. You're filled with praise. As Paul says in Colossians 3.16, the Word of Christ is dwelling richly in you. You love the Word and you want to apply the Word and you commune with God as the Spirit cries out with your spirit, Abba, Father. And you're experiencing the things of the spiritual life. Now, how do you help this individual? Well, notice what it says. This person who slipped into sin is to be restored by the person gently who is living by the Spirit. Almost impossible to see it in the English, but the key is found in that word, Restore gently. It's a Greek word that was used of a physician who skillfully and deliberately sets a broken bone. This past week when I was at the hospital for my brother Ken's surgery, I bumped into my doctor. And I just love that guy who did my my knee surgery. He's the most gentle, loving guy, and I, I, he's great. What I like most about him is when I went to see him three years ago and he gave me a cortisone shot, he didn't state the obvious. You know, Doug, what you really ought to do is drop 30 or 40 pounds. Oh, really? Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> I love the fact that he himself is about 30 or 40 pounds overweight, too. 
But he's a gentle, loving, patient physician. This word was used of a fisherman who patiently mended and repaired his nets. One man wrote, What is wrong in the life of the fallen Christian is to be set straight. It is not to be neglected or exposed openly. We're talking here about spiritual therapy. Where you don't break a person, you restore a person. You don't go in with a big club and beat the person into submission and back into line. Remember, they fell into sin. It, was a, it wasn't just a, a blatant disregard for the truth. It was a slip-up. It was an error in judgment. Maybe they, they had no idea the serious implications of, of, the, of the choice that they were making. And so what you do is you gently, lovingly restore that person. We don't jump all over them like they're the enemy. We come with compassion in our heart and concern in our voice. And notice what he says, the warning here. He says, watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Friend, the easiest thing to do when you're involved in this ministry of restoring others is to become prideful and arrogant. When you confront that person with an attitude that says, I can't believe you did what you did. Why, I would never. We restore gently. We think we're not above that person. We never think that we ourselves couldn't fall into that same sin. So we don't clobber people who want help. And as I read this, I couldn't help but think of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And the story that's found in John 8, where the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And you remember they wanted to stone her. And John tells us the real reason they came was to trip up Jesus and to trap him. And the text says there in John 8 that Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground. And when he was done... He says, if anyone you is without sin, let him be the first one to throw a stone at her. And they all split. And Jesus looked at this woman and he lovingly said, go and leave your life of sin. By the way, have you ever wondered what it was that Jesus wrote in the ground? You know, I can't prove it, but maybe. Maybe he took his finger, and in the dirt, he began to write the names, dates, and locations of the men that she had been with. Pharisee George Jones, Holiday Inn, February 12th. Pharisee Jim Smith, the Marriott, February 19th. Pharisee John Anderson, Hampton Inn, February 21. In other words, Jesus was writing this little girl's appointment book and the men she had been with. And so what we do is with humility and dependency upon God, we restore the fallen. 
Ray Stedman was the pastor for many years at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California. And he has a very convicting story regarding this whole process of restoring the fallen. And it's entitled, Don't Take Me to the Hospital. He writes, the scene didn't make sense. There he lay in the street, bleeding. The hit-and-run driver gone. He needed medical help immediately. Yet he kept pleading, don't, don't take me to the hospital, please. Surprised, everyone asked why. Pleadingly, he answered, because I'm on the staff at the hospital. It would be embarrassing for them to see me like this. They've never seen me bleeding and dirty. They always see me clean and healthy. Now I'm a mess. But the hospital is for people like you. Can't we call an ambulance? No, please don't. I took a pedestrian safety course and the instructor would criticize me for getting hit. But who cares what the instructor thinks? You need attention. But there are other reasons. The admission clerk would be upset. Well, why? Well, she always gets upset if anyone for admittance doesn't have all the details she needs to fill out her records. I didn't see who hit me, and I don't even know the make of the car or the license number. She wouldn't understand. She's a real stickler for records. Worse than that, I don't have my Blue Cross Blue Shield card. What real difference would that make? Well, if they didn't recognize me in this mess, they wouldn't let me in. They won't admit anyone in my shape without a Blue Cross Blue Shield card. They must be sure it isn't going to cost the institution. They protect the institution. Just, just, just pull me over to the curb. I'll make it some way. It's my fault that I got hit. With this, he tried to, call to crawl to the gutter. Well, everyone left leaving him alone. Maybe he made it, maybe he didn't. Maybe he's still trying to stop his own bleeding. And then Stedman writes, Does that strike you as a strange, ridiculous story? Just a second. Yes. He says, It could happen on any Sunday in a typical church. He talks about the fact that there were people, he said, you know, that, that what happened if somebody were run over by sin on a Sunday night? He says, I know it could happen because last night I asked some active church members what they would do if on a Sunday night they got hit and run over by some unacceptable sin. Without exception, they said, I sure wouldn't go to church the next morning where everybody would see me. Now be honest, would you? Or would you reason the members would ostracize me? They would look at me like I was strange and didn't belong there anymore. Some of the self-righteous would accuse me of being a hypocrite. The Sunday school teacher would be mad at me for not learning what she had taught me. Those sitting next to me would be embarrassed not knowing how to react because they didn't know how everyone else felt. They really wouldn't know how to react to a known dirty saint. You know, I hope and pray that that never happens here at Mid Valley Bible Church. I hope this can be a hospital 
where people come and can get the help that they need. You know, as I was thinking about this whole message, I thought of the question Cain asked God. When in Genesis 4 he said, Am I my brother's keeper? You know, it's interesting as you read that story, God doesn't give him an answer. You know why? Because the answer is so obvious. It's so evident that it need not be written down. Because the answer is simply this, yes, yes, I am my brother's keeper. And I keep my brother and my sister in Christ, my brother and sister in Christ, when I help them when they fall into sin. Friend, what Paul is talking about in this verse of Scripture is simply this. The urgent task that falls on each of us to seek to restore and reconcile a fellow brother or sister who's fallen into sin. And I know, I know that I will be misquoted and misunderstood. But friend, as important as prayer is within the body of Christ, sometimes prayer is not enough. You've got to confront You have to literally go to them personally and lovingly and humbly insert yourself into their life and be used of God to turn them from the error of their way. And the reality is God may be calling some of you to sit down with them and alert them to the misdirection their lives have taken. And again, I know exactly what some of you are right now thinking. You're saying, Doug, this this really sounds scary to me. Doug, a message like this makes me incredibly nervous. It almost sounds as if you're saying that people should go around sticking their noses into the private affairs and personal lives of other people. We ought to meddle in other people's affairs and make moral judgments about how they live. That sounds, Doug, more like a cult than a local church. And you know what? When you put it like that, it does sound like a cult. But that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. If you know that person and you love that person, and you have built a relationship with that person, when you find them doing something that is clearly sin, where the major trajectory of their life is not good, you go to that person and you lovingly, you gently, with a voice that quivers and tears in your eyes, you restore that person to help and to the path that God wants them on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this needed reminder this morning of our responsibility as your children within the body of Christ to be useful in the task of bringing those who have fallen to the level of the flesh up to the level of the Spirit. Lord, we can't do that on our own. We need your help. 
And that's why this ministry is to be done by the spiritual. And so I pray that the simplicity of these marvelous truths would be used by us. We pray, Father, that you would use us not to fulfill the lust of the flesh, but to produce love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. And then, Father, to eagerly engage in a ministry of restoration to those who we observe who are living lives of sin and are not living lives of purity within the body of Christ. We pray that you would call us afresh to this ministry, help us to eagerly accept it, and to step out with courage and boldness to do it. Give us those opportunities and keep us faithful as we seek to walk by your Spirit. And we pray towards that end. In Jesus' name. And everybody agreed said.